0: There we go. All right, this is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, my name is Larry Walker. I am one of the elders here, and also on staff, uh, with an ever-changing title. I've had four titles in seven years. Um, right now, it's Director of Missions and Discipleship. Um, so, if you're new here, I see some faces I don't know well, and as soon as I get off the stage, what I do is I go straight to the front door, and i wait to corner you in case you try to slip out too quickly. Um, nobody? All right, cool. All right, we're going through the book of Philippians, um, which is a book of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. It has a lot to do with joy, and particularly joy and suffering. This is a message that... Uh, our leaders really believe we need at this time. Um, Last week, I mentioned briefly the stat that uh, over the pandemic, the United States experienced more deaths from alcohol and drug abuse and suicide uh, than any other time in American history. But we don't really need a stat to feel that, right? We know our lives. We go for walks around the city. We see what Philly is like, the beautiful and the, the hurting um, we can also just look in ourselves and think through how we've experienced the last four years of life, and we've experienced sadness and depression at times. My wife the other day, with her permission, um, I was—if you don't know my wife, she's really, really funny, and she's very, very real. You're gonna—you're gonna get what she's really thinking. So, she was sitting at the dining room table the other day, and I was walking up the steps, and she was working on something, and then she just looked up and she goes you know, I'm just sad that I'm, I'm sa- sad. Why am I sad? And I go, are you sad? And she was like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I think you just like described how a lot of people feel. Uh, we're sad and sometimes we don't know why. These words inspired by God talk about these things. And God has a lot to say about it. Um, so I want to walk through this passage with you. I... Had a conversation at staff meeting with Carol who uh, unknowingly like ruined my week. I'm just kidding, Carol. Um, I had this number in my head of if you, you gotta preach like 300 to 350 sermons, you know, to get decent at it. And I'm on like somewhere, I don't even know if I'm to 50 yet. And when I said that number, she goes, no, 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 it's 500. (laughs) I was like, oh, cool, 10 years, awesome. 10 years full time. So I guess at this point you just throw it to the wind and you're like, whatever, I'll be the best I can, I guess. But last night, so I wrote this sermon, this is the fourth version of this, and one of the things I've been praying about is there's different types of preaching, right? Like there's, like sometimes you write out a manuscript and that's like super Presbyterian, you know, and sometimes you, like some people just go up with like three lines and they just trust the Spirit to speak. And that's my goal in life, is to get to that point where I can just come up here and be so filled with what's true that it just comes out of me. So I wrote this out, and then last night I made the mistake of reading a really good book at like 11 o'clock when I couldn't fall asleep. And it was called The Jesus Way by Eugene Peterson. And it like it like ruined the sermon for me. Um, so we'll see where this goes. Because um, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what I should have said. But it's too late. Um so the three points I have are, what is the gospel? Um, secondly, how do you live a life worthy of that gospel? And how do you suffer for Christ's sake? But the way he would put it is, um, what is the Jesus truth? And what is the Jesus way? And how do you get the Jesus life? That's how he would put it in the book. That might be all you get out of this other than go read that book. All right? So point one, what is the gospel? Um, One of the things that I don't wanna do anymore when I'm up here is just say Christian-y words without explaining them. And uh, I remember what it was like to walk into a church for the first time, and there's a lot of things you hear. You hear words like righteousness and sanctification and justification and theology and gospel, and you're like, what does that even mean, you know? And you kinda pretend and play along. And so we're saying, this passage says, live a life worthy of the gospel, but what is it? So I just wanna explain what it is, okay? What is the gospel? So the Bible teaches that we were once at peace with God and with one another. And then humanity fell, as the Bible calls it, by choosing to disobey God's commands. We've separated ourselves from God. And we do that every day. Even if Adam and Eve hadn't done it, we would have done it. I would have done it. If mankind hadn't fallen before me, I would have done it. Every day we think we know better than God. I think I know better than God. And we do what we think is right instead of what he says is right. We make other things our God our hearts are drawn to destructiveness, right? This leads to death, actual physical death, but more importantly, spiritual death. We are dead and separated from God spiritually. What can be done about this? In a world without the gospel, that's the end of the story. We're just isolated from God and from one another. We live these separated, isolated lives. And we're dead spiritually and we spend eternity separated from him. The word gospel means good news. It means God came near, And this is where the good news comes in. The Bible teaches that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was fully God, became fully man. And the greatest act of love ever committed. He lived a perfect life. That doesn't mean, it does mean, but it also doesn't just mean. It means he did keep God's law, but more importantly, he embodied God's law. He embodied God's love. He was a living manifestation of God's love in human form. He loved all those around him perfectly. He cared for those that no one cared about. He was not corrupted by power and wealth. He was content with being lowly. Not only that, he, uh, that but he identified and was in community with the lowly. Every time I go for a walk and I see someone sitting on a step covered in sores, um, I always know that Christ is sitting with them. I'm positive. He ate and drank with the outcast of society. His followers were not a collection of who's who. He had all kinds of people who followed him. And his closest friends were outcasts. There were people that it'd be really hard for us to spend time with, I think. He lived a perfect life fulfilling God's requirement on our behalf. And then he died on our behalf. He died the death that we deserved. And God placed his wrath for sin on Christ. And he died on the cross for me and you. Christ rose from the dead three days later, defeating death on our behalf. He appeared to his apostles, then hundreds, and he ascended into heaven and sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to bring spiritual resurrection to us, to those who turn their own ways. And now we have the opportunity to come to Christ and turn from those ways and to give our life to Christ and experience resurrection ourselves. For me, that happened June 28, 2001. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget what it was like. I don't know when you became a Christian, um, but I'll never forget what it was like to to be dead in my sins um, and to to have no concept of what love or peace felt like, Um, to be someone that society kind of didn't want to sit by. You know what I mean? You know, I've talked about this so many times that it exhausts me. But I was a homeless teenager. I was definitely someone that people wanted to look away from. And I'll never forget what it was like to be loved by Christ and loved by the church. I remember very vividly. Christ did this because he loves you and he loves me. He knows our hurt and our pain, and he longs for us to turn to him. And you can do that right now. You're not alone in this room if that's you. Um, the last couple Sundays I've had conversations with, as I trap people at the door, um, there's been a lot of new people who are struggling, and they're, they're showing up asking questions, and they're in a lot of pain. And if you're here today, and that's you, you're welcome. Um, this church is made up of people who came here asking questions, I think, often skeptical or jaded, and this is a place where your questions and your doubts and your struggles are welcome. We're here on Sunday mornings for this purpose, not for a production, not to wear nice clothes. If you hadn't noticed, I reject that generally, or to put on a program. We're here because we've experienced resurrection, we've experienced love of God, and we're here to worship the God who came near to us. I tell you that I believe it's true because I've experienced the resurrection, I've seen resurrection, I've seen lives changed, and I'm convinced that the only hope for this community that we love for our brothers and sisters who live on the streets, for the city that we love, is nothing short of resurrection. It's what our community desperately needs, is resurrection. And that's why our mission is so important. So that's the gospel. It's not exhaustive. There's volumes written about it, all right? How do you live a life worthy of that good news? Now that we know that God loves us, for one, it's important that we know that we live this life not so that God will love us. Uh, We live this life because God has loved us. God has come near to us, so now we draw near to him. And Paul's desire and his command here is for the Philippians to live a life worthy of this good news. And when I hear that, um, it's, it's not just simply like being like not just simply honoring that and living a life that honors that. There's, It's a really lofty thing. How do you live a life that is worthy of this lofty good news, right? So that you don't waste your life. What he says to them is he wants them to be unified, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by their opponents. I think the simple answer is actually this, but we'll dig into it more as this book goes out. I think the simple answer of how you live this life is a life yoked to Christ, learning how to follow the Spirit. And there, you know, it's interesting when you have a really stacked staff. When John Alexander was here and um, Victor was busier, there were four of us. It was I had this like luxurious like, first four or five years here where every single Wednesday, I would use the day to try to, like I wouldn't plan anything. And I would just walk out the front door, in a sense, and try to determine where the Spirit leads that day. And I had some weird days. Um, I would often end up sitting with a homeless person at a coffee shop. Because if you buy them, something it gives them a ticket in, right? They have a right to be there now, just like everybody else. And you meet a lot of people who nobody wants to meet. And uh, there's the way I picture it in my head is... There's, there's a sense like, you know how like a bloodhound catches a scent, you know, and they're just like, they just like, like, wait a minute, I think it's that way. I've, I think there's something to training that and learning that in you where you start to sense God's presence and uh, the things that get in the way of it, though, are legion. Uh, it's the constant hectic pace of life, the distractions around us, the the fears of like, I don't know if I want to go there, you know, I might die. (laughs) Um, Or they might ask me for something, right? What if I don't want to go there? What if I don't want to talk to that person, right? What if this person figures out where I live? We all live super close to one another. There's a real big list of things that get in the way of learning how to follow God's spirit. So how do we apply that? His desire for the Philippians to ourselves in our present situation. What does it mean by having one spirit, one mind, striving side by side? It's much easier said than done. Stephen's going to preach on this a lot in the next couple of weeks, and also Omar at some point. Um, but this is in the text, so puzzle through it a little bit with me. Would you say that we as a nation are a unified people? No one's going to raise their hand. Um, would you say that we as a city are a unified people, or a neighborhood, or a church? What divides us? I think we all kind of know the answers. It's usually like my opinion on an issue, right? Um, In the last year, I've seen more of our country than I've ever seen in my previous 39 years. I turned 40 a couple weeks ago. Uh, It's all downhill from here. Really, it is. Um, If I die at my grandfather's age, I have 25 years left. Um, I've never been out of the country. I've never been north of New York City, and I've never been west of Chicago. In the last year, by God's grace and generosity, uh, we've done a lot of traveling. I don't, I don't know when we'll ever have a year like this again. Um, we went out west on sabbatical to Yellowstone, saw South Dakota, the Great Plains. It was crazy. Um, we went to what I would call the jungles of Florida. Um, there's real jungles there where there's just like tortoises and iguanas and alligators. Um, I keep joking that if Philadelphia, if like Florida applied Philly's rules about safety to nature, you know, if you you just drive up to the state of Florida and it would just say closed. Um, It is a wild place. How in the world? What I kept thinking was like, how in the world do you like unify these people? Because your background and where you're from helps you, like it's what, it's how you assess risk. It's how you assess what's right and wrong and danger. And this is a really big place. How can there be any hope of uniting this country, let alone the world? But that's what the Bible says the mission of Christ is, to save the world, to bring humanity back into a right relationship with God and with one another, to save a people and make them one. I think the answer is actually pretty simple. We want these big answers, but they're, they're actually pretty simple. The same spirit that raised me from the dead and resides in me. If you're here today and you believe in Jesus, is the same spirit that raised you from the dead and resides in you. And the spirit is one. Whatever your background or where you're from, that's something we have in common. The same Christ who lived that beautiful life and died that horrible death for me is the same Christ that did that for you. And we're now blood-bought relatives, period. Even deeper than that, we are all yoked to Christ. What does that mean to be yoked? Uh, I've never yoked animals. I imagine Phil has. If I were to guess anybody here, all right, no, no, yeah, all right, cool. I've hooked horses together. Is that yoking? But I don't think it's a yoke. Um, being yoked just means that we're like, we're hooked together, right? And you can't just like go separate ways. One can't go left and go right at the same time, okay? It means being connected. We're pulling a weight toward a destination. And what's that des- destination? Paul says it right here. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is not a oneness where we lose ourselves entirely and are all carbon copies of one another. Rather, God uses our uniqueness and our gifts and we are being saved by the same Savior, filled and empowered by the same Spirit with the same goal in mind, that people put their faith in this gospel. That's why Paul's in prison. And that's why the Philippians have enemies at all because this is what they're striving for. The work of Christ, the struggle of Christ, is to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's what we prayed for a few minutes ago. God, bring your kingdom. We can participate in this work when we choose to love the outcast. When you take the time to love someone the world has rejected, you're an instrument for God to heal them. I don't know if we realize uh, how much the image of God, which resides in all human beings, uh, has been broken and marred and defaced by the world and the sin around us and in us. And when we work to love people genuinely with the love of God, we are restoring that image. That's what we're doing. Um, And in doing so, we're bringing the kingdom. There's no greater work. We can participate in that work as we simply love our neighbors and be present with them and live out our faith in front of them. But we have to slow down for sure. In the history of the church, there have been times that the church has so forsaken the idols and distractions of the world and the culture around them, and they've been so unified in a single mission to see a place in a people resurrected and transformed for the glory of God and the good of the community, and God has done great things. That's what we're aiming for here, right? That we as a people so reject the idols in our hearts, the things that divide us and love our neighbors, that news travels about it. That's what Paul says. He wants to hear about how it's going. Again, that's been our history and our calling as a church, and it's our future. To live, speak, and serve as the presence of Christ is our mission statement. Finally, how do we suffer well? He says in verses uh, 28 through 30, and not frightened by anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and here that I still have. This was easily the hardest part of the sermon to me. Um, how in the world do you suffer in a way that uh, it like is a sign of destruction to those around you? It's, it's a weird phrase if you think about it. Um, here's what I think. We will share in Christ's sufferings. Christ suffered to bring in the kingdom and so must we we will suffer because we will be at odds with the world around us. The world does not tell us to love our enemies, but rather to hate them, to mock them. If you go, like, look on YouTube, just read the titles. It's not hard. We're supposed to own people and destroy them. Um, The messages we hear from the world are antithetical to the message of Christ. The world does not tell us to be humble and repentant and admit that we are wrong and we need help. The world tells us to figure out who to blame for our troubles. And the world never tells us to forgive, ever. In this context, Paul is talking about physical persecution for their beliefs, but that's not the only suffering that is in Christ. I think every time that you suffer well and don't lose heart and keep your faith, it's a testament to the work of God in you and an indictment to the world around you. Every time you experience hatred and return it with kindness and forgiveness, you indict the spirit of the age. And one of the things I've been really reminding myself as the world around me tells me to hate certain types of people, you know, is that our war is not with flesh and blood. Our war is with spiritual powers around us. When I see another human being on the sidewalk, no matter what sign they're carrying, how they voted, what they think, they're not my enemy. And when I think about this point that Paul makes of the way we live being a clear sign of destruction, um, I can't. what I always think about with this and it's like a tricky one to talk about is every time I, you hear about some tragedy happening in a church where there's like a church shooting like in Charleston a few years ago and uh, nine people killed, uh, a young white man coming in shooting nine people after a Bible study and a prayer and he kills them and 50 bullets, 70 bullets fired, 50 bullets that made contact and uh, That's what happened in Charleston, South Carolina. And the church experienced more suffering after that when people were really frustrated with them for forgiving the young man. Um, There are articles written about it. In fact, I was just reading and just watching some videos this week about the son of one of the women killed has started a ministry about the power of forgiveness. And he goes and speaks on the power of forgiveness. And he's almost always protested. When I look at that, I see people who are willing to follow the commands of Christ, to forgive and love their enemy. When I look at that, I see security in Christ um, for those brothers and sisters. I see a Christ-exalting and gospel-saturated view of life. And I see an indictment to the world because the world thinks it's crazy, and it kind of is, actually. It's upside down. It's a sign of future destruction for ourselves, for our country if we fail to turn away from our hatreds and sins. So liberty, the world needs this. So God, help us to root out our idols and sins that so easily pull us away from the love of God and the love of our neighbor. God, help us be united and one, striving together for the faith of the gospel in our neighborhoods. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.